My name is Sean McCann. I'm conducting a series of expert interviews on behalf of the European Hematology Association at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, which this year is in Orlando in Florida. And with me I have Jennifer, Jennifer Wyack, if I pronounced that correctly. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming along. And she is Associate Professor, Division of Hematology at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. And we're going to talk about CLL, yep. right? So um, let me start off by saying that for obviously for a long, long time since I was a trainee anyway, CLL was sort of the Cinderella <laughs> disease, but now it's come into the fore again. Mm -hmm. So why should that be? Well, I think the the biggest change, which has occurred really over the past 10 years now, um, is the introduction of targeted therapies for CLL. And CLL originally was thought to not be a good disease for targeted therapies because it is so heterogeneous and there is not one unifying genetic mutation, um, though there are some recurrent mutations and recurrent cytogenetic abnormalities. Many of them are still like affecting low numbers of patients. So um, the idea that one targeted agent could actually be effective in all of these heterogeneous types of CLL um, was really thought to be just a dream. And then, then comes the inhibitors of Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, and we learned that CLL cells, no matter how heterogeneous they are, are very addicted to B cell receptor signaling. And so blocking that signaling was a very effective treatment strategy. Um, and subsequent to that, so then we had ibrutinib, now we also have a calibrutinib, we have xanabrutinib in development, we have reversible BTK inhibitors, um, and then came along venetoclax, um, an inhibitor of BCL2. And you know, like in many other cancers, CLL cells overexpress BCL2, which helps them evade apoptosis. And by inhibiting BCL2, you can kill those cancer cells very quickly. Um, so now, CLL has a number of agents that you know are very effective in the frontline setting, are very effective in the relapse setting, and I think it still remains an, a disease of interest to study because we don't know how best to combine those agents, how best to sequence those agents, and there's even newer things coming forward. Okay, so the landscape has obviously changed uh -huh. quite a lot. Um, let me be prov provocative and say that a lot of patients with CLL don't need any treatment at mm -hmm. all, so what makes you want to treat people? So treatment for CLL is still based upon uh, symptoms. So that has not changed um, in the recent history of the disease. Um, so we look for people to have constitutional symptoms, fatigue predominantly, but it could be night sweats, fevers or chills, um, the progression or symptomatic lymphadenopathy, progressive symptomatic splenomegaly, and then bone marrow dysfunction because of CLL infiltration. Those are all reasons we start treatment at this point. There have been a lot of studies looking at early intervention to see whether um, for those patients that, you know, by their genomic risk, we know that they are likely to need treatment. Could we improve their survival by intervening early? And so far, the answer is no. <laughs> so, we, so still, sometimes doing nothing is the best yes, thing. Is that yes, yes. Right? Uh -huh. Okay. Um, there's a huge racial difference in the prevalence of CLL in Europe and North America mm -hmm. compared to Southeast Asia. Yeah. Do we have any idea what's going on? Um, you know, not to my knowledge. I, I really, I don't know that we know enough about the genetic basis of the disease in terms of, you know, um, you know whether there are certain SNPs that predispose people to to um, to get CLL. I mean, you you might suspect that that might be the case based upon that um, big okay. difference among the, in different countries, but we don't know yeah. for sure. We don't know. Okay, uh, is the incidence of CLL increasing? 
in North America, Western Europe, or is that just a function of we're all getting yeah, older? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think so it's a couple of things. Um, one is as the population ages, people are more likely to get CLL. And so as people are living longer um, and not dying of other things, then um, more people are being diagnosed. We also have better ways of detecting CLL. So, you know, people are more um, more likely to have routine blood work done where somebody gets a CBC and notices that their lymphocyte count is high, even if their white count isn't so high. So I think it's a, a factor of more diagnoses um, based upon those things. So you don't think the actual prevalence of the disease is changing? I, or, or... I don't have any data to suggest that there is something that is increasing the incidence otherwise. Right. Okay, in terms of the sort of diagnostic profile, not everybody has you know, all the <laughs> most modern gizmos at their uh -huh. fingertips. So what, what would be the minimum criteria for sustaining the diagnosis? Um, to diagnose CLL, all you need is flow cytometry, which shows the typical immunophenotype. Um, so B cell markers, CD19, CD20, CD23, and then the presence of the T cell marker, CD5. Um, typically in CLL, we see uh, low expression of CD20 and low expression of surface immunoglobulin. When those um, are brighter, it makes you think about alternative diagnoses. I know that you never mentioned looking at a blood film. Um, do you yeah, still do well, that? <laughs> I mean, you can, but you can't make the diagnosis based off a blood film. But, you know, certainly when you look at um, a patient with CLL under the microscope, you're going to see a lot of mature-looking lymphocytes. Smudge cells are very common in CLL. Not really pathognomonic, but um, we tend to see them more in CLL. Yeah, I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm a bit older than you, but I still, I still believe, we're, I think we're fighting a losing battle on a blood films <laughs> is actually still important. No, you know, I, <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you that blood films are very important for many, uh, for many things. Um, I just don't think that we can diagnose CLL based upon them. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call that one, one, uh, a draw, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go back to CD20 for a minute. What, what sort of a intrigues me is that it's a very low expression on most CLL cells, but anti-CD20 drugs seem to be very effective. Um, so what, what's, the, what's mm -hmm. going on here? So that's true. However, you know, if you look at responses in CLL to like monotherapy with anti-CD20 antibody compared with kind of similarly indolent diseases like marginal zone lymphoma, things like that, um, diseases that express more CD20 do have better responses to single-agent rituxan. So, you know, CLL does not respond very well to single-agent rituximab. Um, if you want to make somebody respond to single agent rituximab, you have to either give very high doses or you have to give it very often to, I think, to compensate for that. Right, okay. So it has to be given, or, or in combination with something yes, else. Yeah. Yes, okay. Okay, so um, in terms of, of, uh, of toxicity of high doses of anti-CD20s, mm -hmm. could you just say a few words about that? Um, you know, there are not a lot of uh, dose-responsive um, side effects with anti-CD20 antibodies. So, you know, people who get, you know, much longer accumulations of them um, may have higher risks of things like PML potentially. You tend to see that more in people who have had a lot of CD20 antibodies rather than people that are just um, starting them. But you know, uh, other than that, there's really not a lot of side effects that you would get from giving extra CD20 antibodies. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, FCR was deemed to be the sort of I don't know, the, the, the standard of care, should put it that way. Is that still the case or is that being superseded now? For almost nobody is FCR currently the standard of care. Okay. Um, so based upon the data from the CLL8 study and from you know the MD Anderson um, initial CLL studies where we have much longer follow-up, we can see that there is a plateau in terms of um, patients 
stop progressing after a period of time. And there are people who will enjoy at least 10 to 15 year remission durations and we think potentially are cured after FCR. Um, luckily, we are able to at least a little bit narrow who is likely to enjoy those like very long remission durations. And we know that patients who are IGVH mutated are really the only ones that have those very sustained remissions. And then, you know, we have to assume that it's also going to be people who don't have high-risk um, genetic abnormalities. Um, though, for, because the studies are a little bit older, we don't know that for sure. So what proportion of patients, I mean, roughly, would mm -hmm. you expect out of 100 to respond to FCR? Well, almost everybody's going to respond to FCR. Okay. If you look specifically at the cohort of patients that are IGVH mutated, about 60% of them or so will have that, plat will, will have that very long-term PFS. However, you know, as you know, FCR is not without toxicity. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's kind of like a, a high risk, high reward situation. So you might be cured, but there is, you know, this potential that patients are going to develop therapy related MDS and AML, which is almost always going to be fatal. And, you know, depending on the report, you know, that's somewhere on the order of three to even up to 10%. Um, there are prolonged cytopenias associated with FCR. It is toxic while people are getting it. People can develop bad infections. Um, so, you know, it's definitely not without side effects. So, but I think for those IGBH mutated patients that are young, like less than 65 and fit, those are the people that I would still consider FCR to be a, a good standard of care. Okay. So let's say you're dealing with old people like me, okay? Uh -huh. Obviously FCR is not your frontline mm -hmm. therapy. So where do you go? How do you start? How do you figure it out? Mm -hmm. So um, I'll kind of back up a little bit. And we have known, even when we just had chemoimmunotherapy, that FCR was really not the best chemoimmunotherapy for everybody. Um, the Germans did the CLL-10 study where they compared FCR to BR. It was a non-inferiority study. And BR was inferior to FCR overall, except in those patients who are age 65 and older. Um, so, you know, from there, we kind of extrapolate that BR could have been a chemoimmunotherapy standard of care. Um, in the Resonate 2 study, which was ibrutinib versus cell, ibrutinib, you know, was very much more effective than cell as you would expect. And then last Most year, we, are. yeah, <laughs> last year we um, published the Alliance study, AL41202, which was in patients age 65 and older, bendamustine rituximab versus ibrutinib versus ibrutinib rituximab, and saw that ibrutinib and ibrutinib rituximab were superior to bendamustine rituximab. And then there was no difference between the two ibrutinib regimens. Okay. Ibrutinib, I mean, there's something that's come into fashion in the last couple of years I've noticed, you know, Randomized clinical trials were always our sort of gold standard. Now we're talking about the real world. Uh -huh. And some of these drugs actually uh, don't do quite as well in the real world as in clinical trials. Could you maybe comment mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, uh, so there... I mean, ibrutinib I'm thinking of particularly. Yep, yep. Yeah, so there have been publications with ibrutinib, kind of a real-world experience, a mix of... Um, academic and community centers, mix of patients on trial and off trial, suggesting that the rate of discontinuation of ibrutinib, especially in the front line, is a lot higher than on the yeah. trials. You know, I would love to see those studies redone now when people have more experience with the drug. Um, you know, it, it's a trade-off too. So I think that as people become more comfortable with the drugs, they feel more comfortable with the toxicities and can manage the side effects more effectively without taking people off. But also now we have more options for people who are not tolerating ibrutinib so well. So, you know, in the last few weeks, we had a calibrutinib FDA approved. We have venetoclax plus obinutuzumab FDA approved. So, you know, you have this trade-off that people are more comfortable with the toxicities of ibrutinib, but also it's very easy to just switch somebody to something else. Right. So venetoclax in the real world versus in clinical trials? 
different? Um, <laughs> it, it, it is a little bit different too. I'm not sure if it's as different as ibrutinib was, like at least in the studies yeah. that have been presented. Um, but certainly there are side effects with, with anything and venetoclax included. Okay. So my last question is, I, I used to be a transplanter in my younger mm -hmm. days. Is there any role for allografting in CLL? I think there still is. Okay. Um, for those patients, again, who are young uh, or youngish and have 17P deleted or TB53 mutated disease and have progressed through multiple lines of therapy, certainly those patients should um, be given an allogeneic transplantation or potentially considered for a CAR T-cell trial. Um, and then Richter's transformation is another um, scenario where we really don't have a lot of good options. And if you can get those people to transplant, that's what I would yeah, do. Yeah, I think Richter's is pretty well. Yeah. Uh, a box of chocolates is pretty well. Yeah. As good as anything else. Listen, thank you very much indeed for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. And for you young investigators, clinicians out there, CNL has gone from the Cinderella in the back room to be a frontline disease in terms of new ideas and new therapy, and hopefully a lot of these patients will be cured.